And turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 4 to 8 this morning. And I'll get out of the way and you can bring that up. Thank you. <laughs> 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 8. If you are visiting with us, we've been working our way through this letter that Peter wrote to the early church, and that has a great message for us today, too. In this particular passage, we'll be looking at uh, what Peter has to say about Jesus, who he is, and the metaphors that he uses to describe uh, his place in our life and in the church. I'd like to read for us verses 4 to 8 as we begin. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. And a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, would you open it to us today? And thank you for these beautiful pictures that are given of Jesus Christ, of who he is, of his place in the church, and his significance in our lives. And we bow before you today, and we bow in worship, and we ask you to speak to our hearts through your holy word. Amen. The city of Chicago is home to one of the world's tallest buildings, Rising 1,454 feet above the Illinois Plain stands the Willis Tower. And you can uh, show the picture here. Most of us know it as the Sears Tower, uh, but it was renamed a few years ago to the Willis Tower. Until recently, it was the tallest building in the United States. Until the Height Committee on the Council of Tall Buildings ruled that the One World Trade Center is actually taller now. Uh, I thought it was kind of funny that there actually is a height committee on the Council on Tall Buildings. I don't know how you get on that committee, but apparently there are people who investigate those kind of things and make official rulings. It is an impressive structure of steel and concrete and glass that dominates the Chicago skyline. But what's equally impressive is what you don't see, what's below that building. And I know I always look at these tall buildings and I think, how in the world do they, they build these things so they don't just sink into the ground or lean a little bit, you know, one way or the other? You certainly wouldn't want any of that to happen. And it is because long before the superstructure goes up, they're driving pylons deep into the ground. And in the case of the Willis Tower, those pylons were driven some 150 to 200 feet into the ground until they made contact with the bedrock. Why do they do that? Because in a building, everything depends upon the foundation. Everything depends upon the foundation. And the same thing is true for our faith. Everything depends upon the foundation of our faith. 
And Peter, you remember, is writing to believers who are going through difficult times as well. Persecution, suffering, hardship, loss, all of those things that are part of life in this world. And he encouraged them to be strong in their faith, to keep their eyes on Jesus, to look to him. Because the only way that we're going to resist temptation in our world, or the only way we're going to overcome adversity or deal with the trials that come into our life, is by looking to Jesus. And in this passage, what we're going to see today is that Peter describes both the church as a building, with Christ as a foundation, and he also describes him as that most important person in our life. There are four pictures of Christ that are mentioned here that are just beautiful metaphors to help us understand our relationship with him. Number one, he tells us that Jesus is the living stone. And we see that in verses four and five. He said, as you come to him, the living stone, capital S, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Okay, so there's this relationship we have with Christ who is the living stone, big S, and we are the little stones, small s. There are several passages in the Old Testament that describe the Messiah as a stone, or they'll use a rock image as well. And three of them are quoted by Peter in this passage. Two come from Isaiah, one from the Psalms. In Isaiah 28, 16, uh, the Messiah is called a chosen and precious cornerstone. In Psalm 118.22, he is called the capstone. And then again in Isaiah 8.14, he is called the stone that makes men stumble. So these terms are not new to Peter. I mean, in Jewish thought, they believed that the Messiah would fulfill these kind of statements about who uh, this person would be and his role in our life. And so what Peter did was he just brought them together in one place. It's also remarkable to think that, you know, Isaiah was written 700 years before Jesus was born. The Psalms, what David wrote, were a thousand years before Jesus was born. And you get these pictures that are clues that are telling us about what's going to happen and who this person will be that will come. And Peter comes now and he calls Jesus the living stone because he died and he rose again. I mean, he's not this dead stone that's still in the grave. He is alive. He's the risen one that we worship. And just as he was chosen by God and rejected by men, Peter is saying to you and me and to those believers in that first century that you have been chosen by God for a relationship with him. But there are times in your life when you are going to experience rejection because of Christ. There are times when people are going to look at you and they will think that you are odd or peculiar in your beliefs or they're going to shake their head at what you hold on to as most important in your life because they don't understand Jesus and they do not know him. Peter tells us that we are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood who offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Now, I have to tell you, this is one of my favorite passages on the church because of what it says about our relationship with God and with one another. And it is a passage or a teaching that we really need to have emphasized in our world today. 
He tells us the church is a spiritual house. And we can think about the word house in two different ways, and both of those apply. A house is where a family dwells. You know, we're, we're busy now at this time of year getting our houses ready for Christmas. Maybe you have plans for children coming home or for relatives coming over, and you're getting everything ready in your house. And you decorate it, and you want it to be nice and attractive and all of that because a house is where a family dwells. And we have relationships with one another that are important. And I know that there are times when people, again, I understand, come from dysfunctional family situations where there is pain in that. And sometimes it's hard to think of the church as a family then. But I want you to think about the church as a family in the best sense of the word. Of everything that a family should be. Yet also recognizing that we are sinners too, say by grace. And so sometimes even in the church, there may be disappointments in a relationship or in the way that someone maybe have, have responded to you. And we need to forgive and show grace and love one another and care for one another and pray for one another because that's what a family does. And so when we come to know Christ, one of the misconceptions I want to clarify is that there are a lot of people who think that my relationship with God is just a personal thing. You know, it's me and God. And there are some churches even that are kind of set up that way where the emphasis is about you and God and you just come, you know, put in your time Sunday morning, go, and it's that. And they don't have a strong relationship with other people in the church. They don't emphasize that family relationship. But that is so clearly taught in the Bible, and it's so important for us. If we're going to stay strong, if we're going to grow in our relationship with Christ, we need one another. And we need to bear one another's burdens. We need to be there when life is hard and encourage and pray for and help one another. That is vital. Because when you come to faith in Christ, you are joining His family. You know, it just goes with the package. It's not like you, you know, pick one thing and say, well, okay, I'm just going to do this solo over here on my own and just worry about me. No, we belong to the family of God. That's what a church is. And we need one another. And we are to demonstrate that in our love, our service, our prayers, all of those things. But secondly, a house is where God dwells. In the Old Testament, the temple was called the house of God. The house of God. That's where God dwelt. But what is so amazing in the New Testament is that God does not dwell in a building, in a temple. God dwells in his people. And the house of God today, New Testament era, is the church. God dwells in you and me. And even to make that clear, Paul, like in his writings, will talk about uh, our heart being that naos, that holy of holies, that most uh, sacred place even within the temple in Judaism where the high priest could only go once a year when he brought in that sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people. Now Paul says, that's you. When you come to know Christ, you and me, Christ dwells in us. We are that holy of holies. So now live like that as a child of God. We are the living stones that are joined together with Christ. 
And then in a twist, as Peter packs things together here, he says, not only are we the temple of God, we are also the priests who serve in the temple. We are to offer spiritual sacrifices to God. What are those sacrifices? It is our worship. It's our prayer. It's our obedience. It's our service, our love for one another. It's our witness to the world as priests of God who live in a way that others can see Jesus in us. It is all of those things that we bring to God. And so what we do in worship isn't just Sunday morning when we come and we sing songs of praise and worship Him, but it's our life. It's everything that we do is to be an act of worship to God. And because we are that temple and Christ dwells in us, everywhere we go, He goes. And we are to show his love to the world. There is a continuity here in worship that goes all the way back to Moses, to Abraham, to even Abraham's offering that he brought to Melchizedek. I mean, it just goes all the way through the Old Testament. Secondly, Jesus is the cornerstone. And we see that in verse 6. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. The word cornerstone needs some explanation for us because it's not something that we think about in quite the same way as back then. When we think of a cornerstone, we often think about a stone put on a building edifice at the front that's kind of decorative. It has the date when the building was built. That may be all it is, the date stone. Or it might be a stone, like if you see a federal building where they have a plaque there, or schools will have plaques, you know, that say, uh, who was on the school board? Who was the superintendent? Who was involved in building this particular building? And we tend to think of cornerstones like that. But that's not what the Bible means by a cornerstone. Back then, the cornerstone was the most important stone in the structure of the whole building. Uh, it gave direction to the building. When that cornerstone was laid, it set the angles for the building. And every other stone in that building was set in relation to that cornerstone. I mean, so it gives the direction. It gives the guidance. It's the most important stone that was laid in that building. The cornerstone was also a significant part of the foundation. Some cornerstones were huge, absolutely huge. A one stone measured 69 feet by 12 feet by 13 feet in its dimensions. I mean, that's that's as big as a city bus. It's actually longer than a city bus. It'd be kind of like going from that wall to this wall and thinking of this cornerstone as high as up to the, the wood there and then about as deep as our platform. That's a cornerstone that was laid in a building project. Can you imagine that? I just wonder, how could they even move something like that? It had to have weighed several tons. And yet that stone was set in place is a foundation for a building. And those cornerstones, they were costly. They were expensive. You can understand why if they were that huge and that significant. And when you look at that, all of those statements are also true of Jesus Christ. Jesus gives direction to the church. And he's the one that we come to when we come in prayer. 
And we pray to God through Jesus Christ and we ask for his wisdom and guidance in our life. He is also the foundation of the church. I mean, we stand upon his finished work. When he paid the penalty for our sins, he died on our behalf. And it's because of all that he accomplished that the church is even here. We stand on the foundation of Christ and the witness of the apostles and the word of God that was given to us. And thirdly, he is precious. He is costly. He laid down his life for the church. He did what no one else could do. No one else was innocent. No one else was perfect before God and able to satisfy the requirements of a lamb without spot or blemish. Jesus was. And he came and he paid the debt that no one else could. Paul will use this same metaphor in Ephesians 2, uh, 19 to 22. He talks about our relationship to Christ as the cornerstone and the foundation of the church. And he describes again there how we are being built into this spiritual building. Thirdly, the scripture tells us that Jesus is the capstone. And we see that in verse 7. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. And there is some debate here among scholars who look at that word capstone and they go, I wonder if that still means cornerstone. Capstone, cornerstone, and sometimes in your translations in the Bible, depending upon which version you have, it might say cornerstone there. Uh, But I believe it was a capstone and it is different from a cornerstone. I'll explain that for us here. The passage that Peter is quoting from is Psalm 18. 118, excuse me, verse 22. What's significant about that psalm is Psalms 113 to 118 were called the Hallel Psalms in Scripture. Hallel means praise. Uh, When we sing Hallelujah, we are saying praise the Lord. Yah being short for Yahweh or the Lord, and Hallel praise, and then the loo in between is the connection to say praise the Lord, hallelujah. Those psalms were read at Jewish festivals, and in particular, they were read at Passover. So Jesus would have read this passage before he went to the cross. There in the upper room with the disciples when they were meeting, he would have read these words to them, and they would have included them in their prayers and worship that night. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. That psalm goes on to say, O Lord, save us. That's Hosanna. Hosanna. When on that triumphal entry they shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were quoting Psalm 118. It says, O Lord, save us. O Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Have you heard that before? Yeah. From Palm Sunday. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God. He has made his light shine upon us. And with bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. 
when they laid those palm branches before Jesus? I mean, all of this is, it's Psalm 118. It's, it's acting it out. It's recognizing that this one who has come to us riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey, is the Messiah. And they praised him and they worshiped him. And Jesus called special attention to it when he met with Peter and John and the other disciples in the upper room. And so here comes Peter, and he is saying to us that this stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Jesus came to his own people, and what did they do? They rejected him, and they put him to death. They fulfilled this prophecy that was given to us in Scripture. The capstone, just to explain it a little bit more, was different than the cornerstone. The capstone was the highest stone in a structure, and it was placed there for everyone to see. It was prominently placed in a building. Harry Ironside tells the story in his commentary on Acts about an interesting thing that happened during the construction of the temple under Solomon. And uh, he acknowledges this is a legend. There's no way that we can prove it and say that it actually happened this way, but it is a story that is interesting to hear. The story goes that when the temple was being built by Solomon, uh, you know from Scripture that all of the work was to have been done off-site in the cutting of the blocks for the temple because Solomon said he didn't want to hear any sound of hammer or chisel in the building of the temple in the courtyard where it was going to be placed. So stones were cut off-site, transported to the temple mount where the temple was built. And as the story goes, one day there was a stone that was found that was so different from all the rest, the builders didn't know what to do with it. Most of the stones were cut more uniformly to go into the edifice of that structure and place there. And they got this one stone that was different, and they said, must be a mistake. There's no use for it. And so what they did was they actually rolled that stone down the, uh, off of the Temple Mount into the Kidron Valley, which is to the east, and just left it there. It took seven years to build the temple. When the time came, when the temple was being completed and they were looking for the capstone, they sent word to the quarry and they said, hey guys, you know, it's time for this stone. Where is it? And they go, oh, we sent that to you many years ago. And they remembered the stone that was different than all the others. And they went down into the Kidron Valley and they found this stone that had been rejected. And they hoisted it back up. And they, when they placed it into the temple in its prominent position, it fit perfectly. The stone the builders rejected became the capstone. Jesus was God's chosen one came to his own people, was rejected by men and crucified. But God raised him up from the dead, and he is alive forevermore. He's the cornerstone of the temple, but he is also the capstone. He's the one that we look to. He's the one who gives direction to the church. Paul will write in Colossians 1.18, he is the head of the body, his church. Now, how do we show that we understand that. How does that affect our daily life as believers and as a church? Well, that's why we come to him in prayer. 
It's why we look to him. He's the Lord of our life. He's the Lord of the church. This is his church. This isn't our church in the sense of ownership. This is our church in that we fellowship and we attend here. But this is his church. And so we want to make sure that we are doing things God's way. That's why we come to the scriptures, study, listen, pray, ask direction, and put that into practice in our life. When he says that the mission of the church is go and make disciples of all nations, that's why we go and make disciples of all nations. Because it's not for us to decide what the mission of the church is. That's given to us by Jesus. And that affects everything. That affects our relationships with one another. It affects our view of marriage in the world. What is marriage? We look to what God says in his word. It affects you know, our, our view of, of even... Um, of all moral issues, but our outlook on the world, our witness to others, the need for them to come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. All of those things are given to us in the Scripture. And we show that He is the head of the church and the Lord of our life by our prayer, by our devotion to the Word, by our obedience and our service. All right. Well, there's a fourth picture here. And that picture is that Jesus is the stone that makes men stumble. And we see that in verse 8. The first three have been, you know, ones that we would all agree with and are very positive in our relationship because we love him and we know him. If we come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, you know, to those who believe Jesus is precious. He is our living stone, the one who died and rose again. He is our cornerstone. He's the one who changed my life, changed the direction of my life forever when I came to know him and understand what he had done for me. He's my firm foundation. And all of us who have come to know Jesus as our Savior and Lord would say that same thing, that you would tell me that he changed the direction of your life. You were going this way, and he turned you around in the other direction. And he set you on a firm foundation. And he is also the capstone. He's the head of the church and he is my Lord. Jesus is the most important person in our life if we have come into a relationship with him. And we would agree with God and say that he is precious. But to those who don't believe, Jesus is a rock of offense. And he's a stone that makes them stumble. And they keep tripping over him. And you may have had this experience. If you came to know Christ late in life where you were thinking you had everything figured out and you were headed in this one direction and you kept tripping over this Jesus and you kept running into these Christians that he was bringing into your life who would talk to you about their relationship with God and talk about Jesus like he was their best friend and they prayed to him and they, they spoke about him and it annoyed you. Because you didn't know him and you thought you had everything figured out, but he's like that stone in the path that people keep stumbling over and he intends to be that stumbling stone. It's like the scientist who denies the creator and yet as he does his work, he sees the evidence of design everywhere he looks. It's like the secularist who tries to find meaning and purpose in life without God and is frustrated, and then keeps running into Christians who have found meaning and purpose in life because of God. Or it's like the idealist who believes that man is basically good. If we could just kind of solve some of these environmental issues, man's good, 
And, and we could take care of things through education and, and uh, eliminating poverty, and then everybody would be good and everybody would behave properly. And then they are confronted by the evil in our world, by wars and violence and hatred and cruelty, and even when they try to fix the problems through education or government or reforms, it's still broken. There's still something wrong in the heart of man. And they can't explain it. And what they find is when we come to the Scriptures, we find the best explanation for the human condition. That this book explains that there is a God who made us. There's a reason we're here. And there is life beyond this life. And it tells us that we are flawed. We are broken because we have sinned and we have rebelled against God. We've disobeyed his word and we have made a mess of things in our relationships because we are flawed. And it tells us we have an adversary, Satan, who doesn't want you to know God, who loves misery, who loves evil, who loves hatred, and he is actively at work in our world. C.S. Lewis wrote about his conversion, and his conversion was actually an illustration of the things that I've been talking about. C.S. Lewis was a skeptic and an agnostic for many, many years. And he wanted nothing to do with Christianity. And then God saved him, turned his life around, and he became one of Christianity's foremost spokesmen. And in his own words, he described how the hound of heaven tracked him down and how he finally surrendered to Jesus Christ. And here's what he said. He said, in the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in. And I admitted that God was God, and I knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England I did not see then what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility which will accept a convert on even such terms. He described himself there as dejected and reluctant because he had fought so hard against God and finally came to that point where he just surrendered everything. In his book, Surprised by Joy, which is his autobiography, um, he tells about that and what happened, and he tells how the hound of heaven crept ever closer. Lewis would say of himself that he was surprised by joy, that the nagging, nameless longing that had haunted him for years and that he had tried alternately to satisfy and to deny now gave way to contentment. He had been looking for his answer in the wrong place. You know, it's interesting, as I read through his story, too, he tells how his friends, Tolkien, J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and a man named Dyson, explained to Lewis the meaning of sacrifice and propitiation as they walked behind Magdalen College at 3 a.m. one morning. You know, those guys had many conversations through the year and talked about faith, and it was that relationship and the study of the Scriptures that led C.S. Lewis to admit that God is God and I need Him. What C.S. Lewis had been looking for all his life, he found when he surrendered his life to Jesus Christ. And what about you? Have you come into a relationship with Him? 
Have you surrendered your life to Jesus? Now, I know that most of you here would say that. At some point in your life, you made a commitment to him. And Jesus promises when we open our heart to him, he will never leave us nor forsake us. He will be there. But maybe there's someone here today and you've never made that commitment and you would like to do that today. And you'd like to know that your sins are forgiven and that you have eternal life. In Romans 10, 9, and 10, Paul wrote this. He said, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is the Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. You know, it's, it's not enough what Paul is saying there to just say the words. No, it's, it's a commitment of our heart that says to Jesus, Jesus, I thank you that you died on the cross for me. And I may not understand everything about what it means to know you. I didn't when I first came to know Christ. I don't think any of us fully understand what all of it means. But we know enough. We know that we are sinners. We know that Jesus died and he rose again. And we know that we want to follow him. And so we come and we surrender our hearts to him and we ask him to forgive us to be our Savior and Lord. And when we do that, he takes us at our word and we are changed. We're changed on the inside. And he comes to take up permanent residence in our life. You can make that decision today. I'm going to close in prayer. And I'm going to invite you to pray with me these words that would express that commitment to Jesus. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you died on the cross for me. And today, I surrender my life to you. I ask you to forgive my sins. I ask you to come into my heart to be my Savior and Lord. I pray that you would show me your will for my life. I want to know you better, and I want to follow you. And I pray that you would help me to grow in my relationship and my understanding of who you are and what this means for me. And I ask this in your name. Amen. You know, if you made that commitment today, I'd invite you, I'd encourage you to tell someone. I had a woman a couple weeks ago came up to me after the service and said it was four years ago this day I prayed to receive Christ. And um, it's really cool to nail that down and to make that commitment. And one of the best ways to, to remember it is to tell somebody what you did today. Thanks.